What's up, Wokos, and welcome back to your favorite Women of Color Organizing podcast. So we are currently on episode seven, and we are chronicling life under quarantine. So how are you, Soraya? I am, I'm moving through this moment. It is very, every day is a little different. I've been trying to take it one day at a time. This week was a pretty solid week. I have been, I found this organization called Jammy Linguist or Jammy Linguist. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but he's a, or that organ, that company business is a black woman owned business that specializes in like connecting translators to like social justice organizations to like allow for like multilingual events. And part of the services that Jemmy is currently doing is a, like a language learning program. And so I am taking part in an intensive Spanish learning program that is centered on the African diaspora. And so I've been learning Spanish, which I have been for a while, but through the lens of having a coaching towards activities that'll help me become more confident and get closer to fluency as well as um, like learning and speaking like centering topics around like black people and blackness which are some of my favorite things so that has been really fun it's getting to the part where it's like the newness is kind of starting to wear off and it's like getting a little more like challenging like this is going to be work but I'm happy with where my conversation skills are going and I'm excited to be able to talk to more folks. So if y'all want to speak Spanish to, with me, hit me up. Dope. Maybe sometime we should practice together. Yeah, we should. <laughs> <laughs> I've also been um, reading Black women romance novels with one of my friends. And um, it's easy because they're, they're on my phone. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like pouring through them in the middle of the night. And like, and, like, at the, like trying to get ready to go to sleep. And I think this week I've read three. Wow, that's impressive. I'll go to get online and just see a bunch of stuff. And my brain's like, we're not dealing with this. And I was like, okay, but we're dealing with this. And I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> reading these uh, comfort books. But yeah, that's me. How are you, Crystal? Great. Um, I'm good. My semester just ended. So I feel like I am just now becoming adjusted to quarantine life without a structure which has been interesting figuring out sleep schedules. But I guess this week, what I've done to try to have moments of joy, I've been handwriting letters, which is something that feels kind of archaic for me, especially because I was born into like the tech era. So that's been fun trying to put, you know, feelings into words has been interesting, an interesting challenge. And yeah, I've, you know, excited this week. I feel like I've dedicated more time to the podcast, which uh, feels very exciting because it is our baby. (laughs) We know a lot has happened since our last episode, and we just want to use this part to update y'all on the changes we're seeing and experiencing. Yeah, let's get into that. As many of you know, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery happened recently. 
Sarai and I have not had the emotional space to process this fully yet. We are taking the time to process this and check in with friends and loved ones. Okay, so currently, um, some of the ways that COVID has impacted Detroiters and Detroiters' right to water and accessibility has been um, up in the air. So many poor families in Detroit are still mainly without water, meaning that within this virus, they can't follow the CDC recommendations of washing their hands X amount of times, um, which really poses a significant public health threat. The Detroit Water and Sewage Department said that late April, they had restored water to almost every household in the city, following Whitmer's order to reconnect households during the pandemic. So that's what's being said at the state level. However, many Detroiters who are on the ground and activists are saying that the city's estimation is unreliable and many are still without water. The city has had more than 9,000 houses without water. The city has said that more than 9,000 houses without water were vacant. However, activists told Michigan Radio and the Detroit Free Press that it is difficult to determine whether or not those buildings are truly empty. An investigation from the Detroit Free Press in 2018 showed that many supposedly abandoned houses were actually housing squatters who lived there without heat or water. So a big part about this water shutoff issue is that the Water Reconnect program was to reconnect homes that had lost their water due to the pandemic. So I think some of the estimations from the city are artificially high based on the fact that many homes in Detroit has lost, have lost water prior to the pandemic. And so I don't know a clear estimate of how many homes are without water. However, I know to be skeptical of the numbers that the Detroit Water and Sewage Department are, are talking about right now, because um, I think those estimations are a bit conservative. So mm -hmm. that is what I have observed um, and read from the Detroit Free Press and the Michigan Radio about what is happening about water shutoffs during pandemics <laughs> and water availability during pandemics. It's really heartbreaking um, to know that many can't wash their, their hands or don't have the facilities for indoor plumbing. And many of these people who live in homes and someone contracts COVID, there is such a higher mortality rate in this situation. So the racialized component and the, the class component of this crisis is so massive because it is really exacerbating inequalities that have always been present. Yeah, like uplifting that because... Yeah, I think that's I think that's important to note in this moment of as I was like reading and researching for the parts that I'm going to do updates on. I'm seeing a lot of. For me, it just feels like a sense of hyper individuality. Yeah, and an example of like. And I'm going to talk about this a little more later, but it's like um, we're seeing increases in cases specifically in predominantly black areas and we're just reporting that number and i think a lot of folks are assuming that it's like oh they're just not following social distancing rules and oh they're just like not taking this seriously and I, maybe that's true in some regards but the other question is do folks have the conditions to do this safely at all? a lot of black folks and brown folks are <coughs> essential workers right um, 
lot of folks. Um, one of the organizers in our community has been uplifting that, like, a lot of folks in, like, southeast, southwest Detroit, southwest Detroit, a lot of folks in southwest Detroit are particularly, like, folks who are undocumented and so would be less likely to, to report a need because of the hostility and, like, the violence that is happening against, like, folks from the migrant community. And so you have this moment of, like, we're underreporting out of necessity for survival, which is also impacting folks' ability to get the resources they need to survive, which is, like, just adding additional burdens to, to folks that the state should have the responsibility to deal with and mm -hmm. solve. So that's one bucket of problems. And then there's another issue of, like, we're seeing news updates about, like, people are throwing parties in Detroit. People are trying to barbecue at the park, which, again, maybe that's true in small amounts, but that does not justify or erase the reality that Black folks are dying right. at an alarming rate due to COVID and COVID-related things specifically. And it is because they are being put, not of their own free will inherently, in situations due to these structures that are making them more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and water is something I don't think folks have to think about if their tap works. Um, <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, thank you for uplifting that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a, an invisibility when it comes to the things that plague Detroiters. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times you want to attach, you know, the inequalities that they face to character attributes. You know, people are reckless or people just want to have fun or people are just, you know, just how poor people spend their time or whatever else, what, what other stereotypes that have been placed on Detroiters. But there is a whole layer of invisible issues that a lot of Detroiters face mm -hmm. that do not receive the proper publicity or the proper help. And, and you know, even at the state level aren't being given a fair and honest, you know, support. That makes, that's a lot, makes sense. Okay. So, um, another thing that we want to archive for the moment is that George, the state of Georgia recently has been in the midst of a soft, quote, soft reopening, which is basically that things like nail salons and a, like a few other non-essential businesses have been allowed to reopen. Um, and then travel into the state has been allowed to uh, recommence. And what was reported by, by CNN recently in regards to this is that there was an increase uh, by 13% of people traveling to Georgia, which amounted to over 60,000 trips within like a week. And in the midst of that, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's like directly correlated, but a thousand cases, new cases of COVID were reported, like the day that this was happening. And so while that doesn't inherently mean that like those trips specifically meant that the, the tr directly triggered those 1000 cases, but it, what it does do is reassert the fact that this is not over. And a lot of people are being put in danger by these soft reopenings um, because people are getting impatient. 
and also the state is not providing enough like the state as in and by that I mean like state governments federal governments the state as a as an institution is not providing enough across the board resources to allow folks to do this safety safely without risking their livelihoods and I think that's a thread of a lot of the things we're going to talk about in these updates um but like this is not over like nothing has changed to necessitate to like, even suggest safety um there hasn't been increased abilities to trace contact with the virus there has not been across the board increased access to personal protection equipment to keep people from spreading the virus there hasn't been even a decrease in cases and so for these soft reopenings and reopening protests to be happening right now again demonstrates a very lack a very clear lack of either compassion or care or like or understanding of this moment or a mixture of those things because we're like pushing for this like change in the way we've been operating on across several levels without anything having changed really so that's been that's been frustrating um again like atlanta georgia another predominantly black place that is now at higher risk due to these decisions that are being made by individuals who are not recognizing the impact of their actions or not honoring the impact of their actions rather as well as by state institutions that are not holding the line and setting an example that will promote folks' safety. So that's one thing. Another update that's happened, it's been about a month since our last episode when we did general updates because our last episode was the no-name episode. And so a lot of stuff has gone down. <laughs> uh, but another thing that's happened in that period is that the president, the sitting president of the United States, um, during a press conference mentioned, and you could tell this wasn't like, nobody told him to do this. <laughs> um, mentioned kind of off the cuff to like that folks could consume in some way cleaning products. I have to record this because I would think somebody made this up. Um, like recommended that folks could try consuming cleaning products. Y'all could listen to the video. The way that it was spoken sounds like he was sort of like saying, it's something that I would expect like if he were like saying it off the cuff, knowing that there were doctors in the room and being like, y'all are gonna handle that, right? Y'all will take care of it, figure it out. And it's, it's, it just, it is what it is. It's very startling that, again, like I think a lot of folks who are watching were just like, that doesn't make sense, but that's not safe because it says clearly on the label of all these things that it's not for internal use. Um, and also that you need to call poison control if it so much as gets on your skin in the wrong way. And like, there's just so many reasons that this wouldn't be accurate. And so it's frustrating to see this person who's like at the core of what they have been technically called to do by a significant structure to be just saying these kinds of things without intentionality. And like, ideally, like a, nobody would engage with that. But like, there are people who will, there are people who trust him. With that, whatever feelings I have about that aside, there are people who like follow this this man's leadership, and it just feels very irresponsible for anybody to say something like that, um, especially someone who's supposed to have like clout. Um, so again, archiving, and also like there are folks who would like well and like who 
who might not know any better who would like well intentionally like feed these things to their children feed these things to their loved ones and like this is like the kind of the problem I'm having with it I know there's a lot of like snark that could be applied to this situation um and I'm, I'm talking about it more seriously because like the heart of why I'm frustrated is because like people deserve to be governed if we've agreed to be governed and this is not this is not helpful for encouraging people to take the safest possible options to get through this moment and so yeah definitely I think that's really important to archive because <laughs> I don't think people would believe us <laughs> Um, yeah, I can keep going then, um, because I have the next piece. Um, the last thing I'll talk about for general updates is this series of re, quote, reopen protests. So, um, there's a lot of, there has, there has been around the country, it started in Michigan, um, and inspired a lot of other marches, but there have been marches to advocate for the termination of the stay-at-home orders that a lot of state governors have put out and advocated for. These are the orders, again, that shut down a lot of, like, the, all the non-essential businesses that wouldn't sustain life, at least in um, Michigan. And the point of them is because that, like, the virus can't move by itself. So if people stop moving and stop going to places, including going to work, um, if you're not, if you don't like work in health care or aren't like a grocery worker or something, um, then we'll cut, we'll like tremendously like slow down or halt the spread of the virus. So that's how that's supposed to work. Um, and like, it, it's painful in practice. Like a lot of businesses are feeling the strain of, especially like small independently owned businesses are feeling the strain of like not being able to open. And that hurt, that hurts me as a consumer too. Like I love, I make it a point to try to buy predominantly from small businesses and get my services from small businesses. The gym that I love is independently like run business. And like all those places have to shut down until further notice because it's not safe for them to operate. Um, and they're losing a lot of money. It's causing a lot of fears, a lot of tensions. Around April 15th, this was right after the Michigan governor basically extended the stay-at-home order, encouraging folks to stay at home, and also added more businesses to the list that would be closed. There had been a loophole that allowed for stores like um, stores that were mainly for hardware but sold like some toilet paper and stuff to stay open. Um, and so this was a restriction of being able to, like, for those stores having, being able to be open because, like, people shouldn't be standing in line or walking around a closed, an enclosed space to get non-essential, um, products, um, is essentially was the point. And, like, you could still order these things online, which is why, another reason why it's frustrating that this has had the, people have had the reaction that they have, but this prompted a really big like several thousands of people um like protest at the state capitol and it, it was a mixture i think the my frustrations with these marches is that they were a mixture they were they were had they had an intention it sounds like um there's a lot of other theories to like what's gone into these marches but essentially ideally the 
intention was like these are people who are struggling under having to close their businesses um and there's like a lot of like gardening home improvement businesses that had um participants out at this protest um the other piece of this that is adding messiness to the situation is that these protests are one said to be backed i just learned this new a new term that i have to unpack more but it's said they're being like quote unquote astroturfed and the idea is basically the people who are funding the protests are kind of being hidden there have been statements that have said the rich families like the devos family are funding these mar these protests and so essentially like a rich donor especially a rich donor connected to like a political off like a political position is encouraging the direct violation of legislation executive orders that are that are have been instituted in an emergency to stop people from dying <laughs> like this is so it's like and everyone should read about this for themselves. I'm going to link some articles in the description, but these are essentially like, if that's true, it's like, it's like the rich folks who benefit from the economy being open and running at its fullest, who are latching on to vulnerable, like folks who are like working class, who like need to work for their businesses to survive are like, so like you have these rich folks, like just latching on to folks who are doing this. And the other piece of this that is really hurtful and like made me very very like frustrated and scared for several days is that far-right protesters have also been joining in on these march and act marches and um gatherings and like adding more tension and more aggravation there's been a lot of images of these marches that include like white supremacists some symbols like the confederate flag we don't tread on me flag swastikas like there's a very the, even if the the protest itself had was even if the protest itself had just the meaning of reopening businesses so that people's businesses could survive the fact that these white supremacist groups felt like they were at liberty to be such a huge part of that space is very alarming because in the in the mixture of all of this protesting and the two the two anti stay at home protests that have happened in our state um, these have been white supremacists, like men with guns, like at the state house, at the Capitol. That's just adding a lot of intimidation and creating a lot of questions of like, okay, so like there's high levels of punishment for black folks and folks of color potentially doing something that could be interpreted as not obeying or not adhering to the stay at home orders. Um, whereas like these white folks with this weaponry are, have been, have been, allowed to gather in mass numbers and i'm not saying questioning folks's right to protest um at least i'm not i'm not saying that there's hmm, this is getting difficult to talk about um because white supremacist protests are like white supremacist rallies but there are people there are ways to pro there are ways to protest that like folks who have been centering the needs of their community to stay healthy have been employing that include phone zaps that include car caravans that have limited the, their risk of catching COVID, but there's like thousands of folks gathering in these, for these um, engagements that, for the, that include white supremacist symbology and are blatantly just like basically not adhering to the social distancing or the stay at home orders. Um, the first of these events that took place in Michigan 
also gridlocked the area around one of the major hospitals in our capital city. And folks said that we're saying that it stopped an ambulance. And so like all of these things are being piled together in just a really messy, painful to watch moment that is creating a lot more fear and a lot more tension and and potentially spreading the virus. There are a lot of folks who had a lot of like Trump imagery that they were uh, carrying around at these marches very intentionally. And that's one of the things that always strikes me in these times of just what, how are folks displaying who their supporters are? And like, like there's always more to these things than meets the eye. And it always goes back to oppressive structures. Folks feeling entitled to asserting their individual needs over the needs of the collective, especially in an emergency. And it's just, it sucks. (laughs) And I'm, I'm really disappointed in the way that the state has been kind of skirting around these protests because again, like, people like like black folks get policed heavily if it even so much as looks like they might be not adhering to a law but like white folks who have been gathering in Michigan and in other places and for these rallies have not been and so it's just it's a clear difference in how folks are are being treated due to like racism and um it's frustrating that even in an emergency white folks aren't being held accountable for the things that are endangering our communities so yeah Yeah, I feel that. I think I definitely agree with just, you know, the symbolism of it and the imagery of it and seeing these military assault weapons at the Capitol where, you know, Black legislators work and it would be ignorant to not link these rallies with white supremacy and with, you know, a very unfortunate American history. So so that's been the the part of it. It's, it's, It's interesting. And it was adding like the initial march with like, it was called Operation Gridlock. That was when they blocked the roads around the hospital. They were honking and shouting and playing music. And like, there are folks like immigrant communities from black and other types of like black and brown communities who are like, I, I heard that all day. I knew these folks were, took it upon themselves to gather at a time when it's very, very unsafe to do so for these quote unquote demands that are intentionally in direct opposition to things that will keep me and my family safe. And it's, it's, it's hurtful. Um, because again, like it's hyper individualism. Like you're there, we, they weren't calling for better testing measures. They weren't calling for access to personal protection equipment or tra- or tracing of the virus. They were calling for going back to work, which would also cut off people from their un- unemployment measures that they've been receiving in order to stay home. It's just like, our, it, it just, one, it's, it's hurtful to see. And it's also, for me, example is an example of how limited our imaginations are. Like, it's easier to imagine that a bunch of people will just get sick um, and die of this virus because of this need to save the, to quote unquote, save the economy, which in capitalist economies, there's always, there's always recessions and depressions and it's terrible every time, but I digress. It's easier to imagine that people will just have to die so that the academy, the economy can function than it is to demand that the state create measures that will protect folks in an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that analysis of what's happening, specifically these reopen protests. So for my update, I think this is more of an interesting one. I didn't necessarily anticipate it, but nonetheless, here we are. 
A Detroit rapper named G Mac Cash released a song this week titled Big Gretch, um, <laughs> referring to Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer. This song has locally went viral. I think a lot of people who are listening to the song don't know that G Mac Cash is actually a known comedy rapper. And he released a song late last month titled Coronavirus that went pretty uh, viral. However, I wanted to talk about the song he released that praised Whitmer's leadership during the COVID-19 shutdown. Do it. (sighs) Y'all, I am conflicted. So for starters, I read on um, the Detroit Free Press, I believe, that he was really chill about the reaction to his song, stating that he agreed with her on the stay-at-home situation, and that's pretty much what the song is about. So he doesn't seem like he had um, a strong political motive to create the song, just like I am calling it like I see it. Mm-hmm. On my personal social media, I've seen, which like most of my following and followers are young Detroiters, I've been seeing a lot of people reposting and supporting the governor on the you know, premise of this song. And it, and it looks like to me, and I could be very wrong, but like a very uncritical support of Gretchen Whitmer. But I think my opinion on the matter is really split. For starters, I think, although this, not, this may not have been his intent, I think he got a lot of young Detroiters interested about the governor and by proxy politics. I mean, I think some people, you know, may have not known their local governor. And I think that seems far off for some people, but again, I don't think, you know, some of the the followers, I don't know, I think I'm making a lot of assumptions here. But the point is, he got a lot of young people interested, which is, which is fine, which is dandy. And also, the song is hilarious. <laughs> like, if anybody <laughs> listens to the song, the song is hilarious. And I like to see, like, young Black people having fun and, you know, kind of reveling in joy regardless. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And like, honestly, can turn up to anything. Like, this is a song about the governor. So much. <laughs> and like, so, you know, undoubtedly, this was a creative song. Undoubtedly, like, he got people interested in the issue. Okay. So the part that I have a critique on is this promotion of blind support for Whitmer. I think Whitmer has a track record of being perceived as a progressive candidate. Um, when based on the way she votes and her policy prescriptions are much more moderate and liberal. And I'm wondering if this, this outcry of support for Whitmer is in part because we have such terrible national leadership. And so by relativity, you know, she is doing an incredible job. But I think actually, right, like as a politician protecting constituents, this is a very mediocre feat. Almost mm-hmm. like applauding a fish to swim. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate to go so hard on her, but like this is just how I'm feeling about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also reminded me of a conversation we had previously about, I think a lot of people don't realize how liberal they really are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a large part of her fan base. Yeah, so as you're saying liberal, like what are you mean by that and how and like what are you distinguishing it from right I guess what a better word would be center and Mm -hmm. I guess I'm thinking of it on a political axis of the right being conservative and the left being radical right and the center being moderate or liberal Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people are falling in that center but understand themselves as being left 
Mm-hmm. And I think that caused a lot of confusion <laughs> within our spaces. Yeah. Because when I call myself left, I think I mean something very different. Mm-hmm. You don't think you know. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. Exactly. I, I know I mean something diametrically opposed to a center. <laughs> and so, okay. So if people are wondering, well, what is my critique of Whitmer? Why, why can't I just let us enjoy this song? I want to say that as a constituent in Michigan, as, you know, for the most part, I've been a Black Detroiter for majority of my life. Mm-hmm. I've never felt support from the governor's office. I think there are a lot of things that got her the ballot, got her the win, and I have yet to see come into fruition. Yeah. I think for starters, I got a bad taste in my mouth about her when in 2019 she tried to close Ben Harbor High School, which is like a piston of the school district Mm -hmm. of a predominantly Black poor city. I think also what she does very soon about her reaction to uh, Gary versus Whitmer case, which is basically the case that was filed in 2016 by seven Detroit students who determined that, you know, we deserve a right to literacy. Mm-hmm. So this case is currently in her office. And I think what she does with it will determine the amount of space I allow for reconciliation. <laughs> so, so that's kind of my critique about our governor. I have actually heard something going around on Facebook, like a rally chant and it's like no vp for big g unless detroit kids get literacy Mm. (laughs) so that's like where i'm at with it it's like we'll see you know and i you know i am gonna allow the space for reconciliation but i have yet to believe that detroit residents are whitmer's primary concern when some people might say well they shouldn't be she has this entire state to care for and I would say, you know, the disproportionate deaths that are happening in Detroit City and the disproportionate access, or better said, lack of access to resources should be the main priority because it's the one with the highest mortality rate. Mm-hmm. And I think it might, I don't know why I'm feeling so much tension when I talk about Whitmer to other people who I am in some ways pretty politically aligned with, but I think I just care. You know, I care a lot about black children being able to read and survive and i think as a politician you know my critique doesn't mean that much right like it's not i'm sure she's not staying up at night (laughs) but you know it matters for me to 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 be critical and not unnecessarily so but just calling how i see it yeah that makes sense and then also again there's so we get inundated with so much information it feels like elections just come and keep coming but young people, I get the sense that in the 2018 governor's election, were not this level of excited about Gretchen Whitmer. And so I'm curious about like what this moment will do to and for her overall appeal to young younger voters. Because yeah. right in the, I, I feel like we can call this like politically thinking about like the left and like when lefty discourse got back onto the mainstream again. Um, like this Bernie era from like 2016 to now. 2018 was the most recent election, and that was the election in which Rashida Tlaib, mm-hmm. Ilhan Omar, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, some of the youngest state representatives to be a part of the Congress, the first two Muslim women to be a part of Congress, were elected. And in this wave, there was also in Michigan a very much more progressive candidate, yeah. Abdul Al-Sayed, 
um, who was who is a Muslim doctor out of the Detroit area, I believe, mm-hmm. um, who was running for governor. And so many of the folks in my organizing community were a part of that campaign in some way. And when it got down to election night, Gretchen won the or Whitmer run won the primary. And I'm not uplifting this to I can't speak here nor there about who's like which one of those like were most qualified to be governor. Obviously people believed in Whitmer in some way enough to for her to have the office, but it's a moment of just like we don't have anything more radical to compare her to. And so like you said, in the midst of incompetency, she looks great. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but we des- we've always deserved the best our, our state leadership has to offer. We always have, even if we haven't gotten it. And so it just doesn't feel like there's a, com- there's a fair comparison happening here. Um, and so it is very interesting to see this moment of like young people liking Gretchen because of how they're seeing her only in this moment and maybe there's more to it maybe folks are just having fun which I fully endorse Mm -hmm. um, in this regard but yeah yeah it's a lot I totally agree and I totally think I think you raised a really good point about how the election in regards to relative to Michigan's history was a progressive election Mm -hmm. and I think she could have taken heed to some of that sentiment Mm -hmm. Um, I think she did and so what I'm trying to understand is what separates her from a populist mm-hmm. and when will, I, when, when will I see that separation? Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. I'm open. I mean, by like, I'm so, I feel like I'm so familiar with like pandering and what some people call like window dressings. Mm-hmm. And I think a sentiment shared by the elite is that, especially when trying to get, win elections, in a large constituency area is Detroit City, which is, you know, mainly poor Black people, is that, you know, I will be the one who makes your issues mainstream. I will be the one who brings them center stage. And, you know, you can trust on me. And I think, trust in me. And I think um, I get those vibes from her. Mm-hmm. I am open to being corrected. I'm hoping for someone to say, look at House Bill, da 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 da. Look at the, da, da. you know, look at the ways in which Whitmer has walked the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I just haven't seen that personally. So mm-hmm. this is just, you know, my opinion about her candidacy. Yeah. And another thing I want to lift up because this moment, there's always so much happening is that even in the midst of all of this like this isn't an identity-based critique because another thing that I'm getting wind of is folks critiquing her leadership because she's a woman and like Michigan in my lifetime has has had women governors so like that doesn't feel I was in like fifth grade during the governor Granholm era so I can't speak to that but like the the critiques of Donald of her from Donald Trump were of like that woman from Michigan specifically or like like they're just like I don't want to folks to confuse these critiques with like trying to suggest that like women can't lead because we know women can lead but the problem is that like just any woman isn't going to do what the world needs even if it's a representational win and so I think that's another piece too that I'm seeing especially with like neoliberal 
like centrist politicians like similar to like Hillary Clinton of like now a woman gets to do it but like just because a woman is here doesn't mean that that's gonna get us the wins that our communities deserve and she's being targeted I think because of her gender as well like on the national scene and I and I think in the midst of this like celebration of her is that people feel bad that she's being um targeted in that way and I just want to uplift what you said like that's not a good enough reason to not follow her record or give her props that she hasn't earned because at the end of the day no matter who no matter what sort of identities are applied to a state leader, question that mo- matters the most is, but are they creating the legislation? Are they pushing the bills? Are they doing the executive orders that are making sure folks are getting their needs met? And here the answer is no. <laughs> right. Or not yet, at least. I think a pivotal moment in her entire career for me will be if her decision on, on the literacy case. hmm because that's a tangible way to support, you know, the people that some of which help you become elected. Um, mm-hmm. That's the T. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I think it was really important for us to put on record. <laughs> it was definitely, it was definitely our first experiment of scripting this section a little more heavily, so we can make sure that we offer folks really intentional information. And it was also heavier than I, I, our episodes usually are. <laughs> Absolutely. But heaviness needs to be in the archive, too, so we can, you know, acknowledge and embrace the joy when it comes. All right, y'all. So we're at the section of the podcast where we call them out. In this section, we call out things, people, places that are frustrating. um, And we offer our critique, our Mm -hmm. very generous critique. Yeah. Lay it on me. What you got? Okay. So... During this quarantine, I have had more free time Mm -hmm. and it is easy to get sucked into every corner of social media and the internet. Mm -hmm. And a way that I have been spending a lot of time has been on TikTok specifically. (laughs) So uh, for those of y'all who don't know, TikTok is an app that is most popular among Gen Z. And other generations are free to use and they are on there, but it is most popular against, you know, the youngest generation. And on this app, there are 60 second or less clips of people dancing, singing, acting, et cetera. And I feel like, so I've been on there (laughs) and I've been on there because I follow specific people in my community who I find really funny and engaging and I don't travel to the for you page a bunch uh Mm -hmm. for those who are wondering the for you page is the page that tiktok algorithms curates for you based on people you follow and probably a whole nother set of criteria that we are unaware of Mm -hmm. so y'all are asking you know if I enjoy it and if I'm on it what is my critique (laughs) Basically, one thing I realized being on it, and I feel like I've been on it more heavier this week than I have ever been. I was like, why is there only people of color on my For You page? Mm -hmm. Specifically Black people. Mm -hmm. That's not an issue, but why is this it? Like, it feels very... Why are we curating Black youth-created content? Yeah, or or just like the, the For You pages can 
be drastically different based on, you know, your views and your likes Mm -hmm. to a point where it's silencing. Like I don't ever see, you know, (laughs) people of a different race or whatever on my page, you know, Mm -hmm. which tells me the vice is true. And so the problem with that is an artificial intelligence researcher named Mark Fadul demonstrated that the platform basically reinforces racial bias. Mm. So TikTok recommends accounts based on accounts you already follow, which is not unusual for a social media platform. Mm -hmm. However, he found out that TikTok algorithm works based off of physical characteristics. Mm. Now, this is the part that's problematic, seeing as majority of TikTokers are white. So when you think about TikTok as a platform that young influencers are using to get different resources like jobs or shout outs or, you know, actual monetary support. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, people of color, specifically black TikTokers have been kind of shadow banned from the For You page because mm-hmm. most people are following, you know, the larger crowd of TikTokers which are white. Um, mm-hmm. So they're being followed and recommended less. And this can be seen through that example of uh, t- the teenager Jalea Harmon, who actually created the Renegade Dance. Yes, baby. And received <laughs> no credit. However, it's a famous white TikToker named Charlie D'Amelio who actually received the credit for her dance. Mm-hmm. Because Charlie uh, was being recommended on the For You page a lot more often than Jalea. Mm. So this is an example of how like it is kind of reproducing uh, these biases. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you can go on TikTok, not TikTok, you can go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And if you search, you know, racism on TikTok, there's a plethora of, you know, anecdotal evidence why this app has been silencing Black creators. But the point is that moderators on TikTok were instructed to suppress posts created by users deemed ugly, poor, or disabled. And to censor political speech. Hmm. So not only is like racism encoded in these algorithms, but also classism and also ableism. And, And so it's really unfortunate to see like so many young people spend a large majority of their time right now on these apps that are supposed to bring you know laughs and fun and joy but is really you know reproducing the ways in which not only are we racially biased but again it's a plethora of other ways that moderators are actively suppressing non-dominant identities yep so if you want to search more about this i got this information from theintercept.com but again, you can search racism TikTok and tons of advertisements pull up. So it just made me kind of sad. <laughs> and that's why I'm calling them out. I'm calling out TikTok's algorithms of oppression. I'm yes. calling out Instagram's algorithm of oppression. I'm calling out Facebook because it's on every app. It is. Mm-hmm. It's encoded in the app's DNA. And I'm tired of it. I'm tired of black and brown creators not getting the, the due that they deserve, not getting the roses that they deserve because many white creators are taking credit for black Mm -hmm. trends and black culture Mm -hmm. yeah uh erica hart posted a twitter thread er, this week that mentioned that some a similar thing in the sense that we erase these what are considered smaller instances of black erasure like 
a baby not getting credit for her dance on a social media platform and we don't connect it to this bigger broader structure of all the justifications that are used to describe black folks as inferior and thus it reinforce institutions that create hostile conditions for us and it like i'm widely paraphrasing so please check this out and like her page and all, and all those things but it's true like we can't these things aren't happening in a vacuum and so to effectively like demonetize this girl's creativity in an era where what goes viral can very much set the tone for someone's income is yeah messed up yes it is and that was very well put thank you my column out is not nearly as in-depth as crystals so i will step my game up um, (laughs) in the future but something that i was thinking about a lot this past week um especially with a new netflix show called black as fuck black hashtag black af um which is put forward by kenya barris who is one of the like executive producers of like the blackish grownish mixed-ish shows there's this new show it's on netflix it's like a i think it's like eight episodes long and i watched like the first couple minutes and then had to tap out i watched out like part of the first episode and then had to tap out because i was thinking too hard as i was trying to be entertained and it's just like that's not entertainment anymore um i think we could have like a whole episode about black media representation so i won't dig too deep into this but i'm very critical of how black folks are represented in media because I love us so much like I I'm that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about our review segment episodes because it allows us to really engage in black media that for me makes me so happy and like opens up space to actually discuss and honor the very layered and beautifully complex experience that is blackness but then we have shows like Grownish and Mixedish that are really only characterizing very niche segments of the black community and being toted as like this is the norm and so what happens is a lot of folks can't really see themselves in these shows and also it's creating this perception of like black people should be like this and i feel like when i watch them it's it's grounded in like what happens if we just center these problems and make this we and make this very black family basically in a lot of ways separate from a lot of intersectional issues like an analysis around class. Cause like the family in black as fuck, the family as, or black AF, sorry, I'm trying to cuss less on the podcast. Black AF, the family in Gronish are both either very wealthy or up very upper middle class. And those are the key shows that are being said to describe the black experience right now. And that's one, that's not it. Two, a lot of the, these characters are very like, I can't, I can't name very many young people who would relate to the characters in these shows. One on the wealth tip and also like in Groner, Zoe spent most of the first and half of the second season on Adderall, like, like, like here as a freshman in college. And it's like, that's not, maybe there's folks who, who experienced that, but that show was being, and this is the part that hurts me deep. That show was being compared to the 90s, a different world which again complicated because of like bill cosby and like his connection to that show but for black young people of that era that was one of the first representations of black folks going to college 
and you had black folks in that show who were very much all across the social economic spectrum and then you also in that era had shows like like family matters like i'm trying to think of others family matters living single like these images of black lifestyles that didn't wasn't just touted as like this is the only show that is allowed on this network to talk about black issues because that's what it feels like when I think about Grownish. like you have like all of these all of these sitcoms that are that I can't really tell apart to be to be honest that center either a quote-unquote like race mixed cast where you have like here's a black person who's in an interracial relationship and like here's this gay couple who have adopted a child but you have only the one franchise of the ish blackish grownish mixed ish um group that is allowed to discuss the narrative of being black on tv right now or if not allowed but that is being centered in the narrative of what is being black on tv mean and it's it's very limited and i think if this was one show amongst a lot of others that i could look at and see myself and look at and see my peers then i might have a different feeling of it but because it's we're only talking about blackness in this setting of high wealth and also a lot of proximity to whiteness i'm deeply frustrated because we're again we're like leaving out a lot of the beauty and the uniqueness of being black when we do that so yeah that's my column out like where is the diversity of black representation in media because we deserve it like if we're gonna (laughs) if black culture is gonna be commoditized on social media on the internet, on like in the fashion trends, then why can't we have stories that are easily accessible that center us and are produced and acted and casted and designed by us? Yeah, that's my column out. I'm annoyed. (laughs) Yeah, I totally feel when you said the diversity of Blackness because that is one thing the show lacks. And it's funny because I've watched Blackish and there has been something in the back of my head about that particular sentiment but I haven't been able to articulate it because I think a lot of times the way I consume media is in a detached manner because once I become critical I can't watch it you know and I can't watch so much and I can't listen to so much but that was very evident to me yeah this is one particular yeah like you said niche kind of like on the margins of blackness and we're making this we're kind of generalizing it and that's just not the case mm-hmm. yeah All right, y'all. So this section of the podcast is sometimes my favorite. (laughs) Um, And this is the love letters portion where we give love and libations to people, places, and things that are bringing us joy or you just want to express gratitude. Yes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Good to be recentering on something else. Yeah, it does. I have a lot of love letters. Um, Some of my friends have sent me letters, like handwritten letters. Um, And I've been going, I've been on the fence of like how I feel about these because like physical things have less appeal to me than they normally do, like ordering physical things and like getting mail. And it's mainly because it's just like everything outside feels scary. (laughs) Um, But I love it so much. Like the, it's like a physical thing that I can hold that demonstrates like that my loved ones were thinking about me. Um, so literal love letters to them because I mailed some back. Also, I have been reading a lot of basically comfort books. Like my, I've been reading YA since middle school. 
um, why young adult like novels and they're they're like the kind the classic little books that like really popular movies get made out of so I don't know why people undersell YA but like there's usually in the ones that I like are like like a girl and a boy and they have a crush on each other and they experience a thing and eventually they say like they like each other and it's just very it's very sweet I again could talk about these for a long time my understanding of what relationships were supposed to look like were definitely rooted in those books for the longest time and kind of still are but I can't really relate to the high school romance experience because I'm not that um so I've graduated I found that romance novels are just like the graduation of YA novels like really I've been being prepared for this my whole life and I just didn't see it before but me and a friend have been very like closely curating like books that are written by black women and women of color romance novels that star that like star like black women leads and it's just giving me so much life the book series that i was reading this week i've finished two of them like in the last 48 hours because coping mechanism is called ravenswood by talia talia hibbert she's a british woman writer and so like like the stories have that like lilt like british english lilt to it which is really cute but it's just very healing for me to just watch to like see examples of these men there's not very many lgbt of these books that i found yet which will be the next year like black lgbt but for me it's just very healing to see these main characters just doting on each on black women in particular and like having these huge i have to follow through on this and ask her out crushes on these women and like looking after them um to me it's like, it very much feels like a fairy tale in the sense that like when do black women get doted on in a way that is just like like unashamed, unfetishizing, like I just absolutely adore this person and want to pour affirmation and affection and gentleness into them and just like seeing that. I think that's one of the reasons I'm so deep, closely drawn to them and why I eat them up so quickly. And just, it feels good. They're, they're feel good reads that I think about like long after I finish them. And I definitely see myself as being a writer of these types of books someday. Um, so mad love to Black women creatives who are sustaining me through quarantine and also who are expanding my imagination around how to love Black women and how to look after Black folks. Yeah, it's my love letter. Oh, that was so sweet. <laughs> so my love letter this episode goes to well first of all I think it was an untraditional way I came across this love letter because I was actually doing research for a part that is after this and I came across this page's like manifesto and I absolutely fell in love with it so basically my love letter goes to the Women's Center for Creative Work based in Los Angeles I've been following them on Instagram for a while and I didn't know much about the organization. I just was like, oh, pretty black people, let me follow. But most of their work features black femme artists and artwork. However, they won my love letter for this episode for two reasons. So again, while researching about algorithmic oppression, I came across the book club. Um, they're hosting the reading of the book, Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Noble. And it's an online book club. So you can check that out at womenscenterforcreativework.com if you're interested. Secondly, on their website, I found their manifesto, which I thought was just, I think part of me, just from being in movement, organizing spaces, like ground rules is always the best part. 
<laughs> you know, you really see what an organization values by their ground rules um, or by rules they've already set. And so if I can read a few points of their manifesto that I thought was pretty transformative. So first, it is a place that affirms that art, creativity, and imagination have intellectual, personal, and political value. No art is neutral. It is either transforming or upholding the status quo. And so that last part, I think, was a quote from Adrian Marie Brown. But secondly, it's a place that cultivates a spirit of hospitality and care, the same as we would in our own homes. Thirdly, it is explicitly intersectional and working towards feminism, prioritizing women of color, queer, trans, and non-binary folk, and other marginalized communities. They have a zero-tolerance policy for transphobia, racism, anti-Blackness, homophobia, classism, ableism, and body shaming. It is a platform for creative support and redistribution of resources, where they are constantly leveraging their privilege as an art space in Los Angeles by creating, producing, circulating, and distributing resources to our interconnected network. It is an organization that values experimentation, failure, and process. WCCW is a thoughtful evolution we are collectively and collaboratively working towards. We are a process, not the product. And then, right, that was so lovely. A place that cultivates a spirit of abundance, generosity, and joy with generative collaboration and radical transparency. And lastly, they are modeling a world we wish to see by creating space for radical imagining, visioning, and manifesting. Yo, that's beautiful. I was like, how did all my hopes and dreams articulate itself on this manifesto? So yeah, their manifesto won my love letter for this week and also their page, which you can check out at Women's Center for Creative Work on Instagram or on their web client, but yeah. All right, y'all. So we have a new segment of the WOCO pod. This is our R&R session, which is short for our research and report back. So this section grew, grew out of us wanting to have something that we are continuously researching and learning more about. So for the next few months, Sarai and I have committed to researching about these two topics in preparation for each episode. We are excited to share this with you, and you can catch more info about it on our social media at Women of Color Organizing, which on Instagram is WOCOPOD, that is W-O-C-O-P-O-D. So let's get into a quick intro of what we'll be talking about for the next little bit. So Sarai, what is your R&R? So my R&R is going to be uh, this idea of farming while Black. It is the concept, the concept that I, as I named it, is based off the title of this book written by this woman who is a director of a cooperatively run farm called Soul Fire Farm. I actually found out about her work on my birthday, uh, a Black spiritualist in, my, in our community shared a webinar that she was going to be hosting and it just happened to be on my birthday and it was about black people's history with herbs and um like kitchen herbs and through what she shared she also shared that she um wrote is wrote this book with her collective and that the soul fire farm offers like annual um like farming immersion specifically for black and Black folks and other groups of POC and also like Native folks and um, other groups of Indigenous folks. So I was really excited by that and this idea of, and it was also around the time that there's still like a lot of things coalescing of like, I was watching Queen Sugar at the time and I was like, 
listening to this webinar, I was really getting into taking ownership of the things I was putting in my body and like eating a lot in a lot of new ways I was really proud of that included a lot more fresh um, vegetables and fruits. And all of that just went together for me to want to read this book since then, but I hadn't prioritized it. And then in the midst of Corona, I have been very just like anxiously feeling this need to plant things and garden and create an opportunity for me to more independently grow my food and like build this relationship with like the earth and the soil and all those things. And so even like just a week ago today, I remember being so anxious, like I couldn't work. I was, I would sit down to try to like write a document or get ready for a phone call. And I would just get up and start pacing. Like I need to plant some seeds. I need to do X, Y, and Z. Like, how are we going to produce our food? And I don't know how to do these things. Um, it actually culminated in like this past weekend. I, I literally just, I, I cut two juice bottles in half and I found some potting soil and I just planted a tomato seed. And I was just like, this is going to be it. We're going to try. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to create an opportunity for me to learn more about that process. And like, maybe also a little bit more about like why I felt so hungry to do that um, in the midst of this moment. And so I started the person's name, learn to pronounce it. I'll probably be pronouncing it a lot. Um, is named Aaliyah Penniman. She, like I said, is a director, one of the co-directors of Soulfire Farm. And she wrote this book that was about, that I knew was about farming. Um, but as I've been reading it for R&R, it's also about like literally all the steps to starting a farm. <laughs> so I'm really excited to be talking about that and to be reading it. So I'm excited too, so that you can bring all of that knowledge to the commune. <laughs> So for my R&R, I wish it was as crystallized as Sarayas, but basically right now we've been in a moment where we see institutions being so unstable and impermeable that my R&R was inspired by seeing ways institutions are being very unstable right now and ways that activists have tangibly created other avenues that are outside of set institutions, which I think for me has been a part of also my work envisioning change, understanding what has happened that was at the time deemed impossible. Part of my R&R or the theme for my R&R is the divestment from institutions of like dominant power um, and figuring out ways as a collective we can be tangible about our organizing that is happening on the outskirts of those already very like formed institutions um, and ways we occupy space and ways that we survive that is outside of those institutions that are still very legitimate. Mm. Um, so how communities are creating projects to like meet their needs outside of? Yeah, so like how communities are creating like projects of survival, right? Like. Thank you for trying to scare around that, but <laughs> so yeah. So right now I was thinking about ways that poor people are surviving under COVID and it reminded me of the ways historically poor people have made homes by like reclaiming abandoned private property, mm -hmm. uh, which is also known as squatting. And a part of this was just encouraged by the massive outpour of like rent strikes happening right now and people, you know, refusing to pay when they can't collect pay, right? And like, they shouldn't have to pay. And so this was inspired from that. 
So I decided to research a little bit about the squatters rights movement. I'm definitely no expert on the topic, but it seems to me that it was most notable during the late 70s to early 1990s in New York, and that the movement was not necessarily cohesive. So a lot of people in the squatter rights movement were bonded together by a a similar political ideology, and some definitely weren't, (laughs) and just needed a home, which is fine. But I received some of my introduction to this topic from the podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. The episode is titled Apocalypse Survival Skill Number Two, Making Home, where um, Autumn Megan Brown interviewed Vicki Law, who is a prison abolitionist and squatters rights advocate. Um, who gave really fascinating insight about how squats became about in the 70s and 80s, which then ended into permanent housing through collective and political legal effort. Hmm. So that was really fascinating and something I don't think that is often like publicized because we understand that, you know, (laughs) this has happened, therefore it can happen. It becomes very powerful in the right hands. So basically, in 2002, New York City administration agreed to turn over 11 squatted buildings on the Lower East Side of New York to a nonprofit group on the condition that the apartments would later be turned over to the tenants as housing cooperatives. So that is pretty, it it was pretty incredible to me. And it was very interesting considering the ongoing Detroit housing crisis and the change that can emerge when people understand private property in other ways, Uh, maybe as theft. And also when people can view squatting and vacant homes as a proper use of resource and, mm-hmm. you know, leaving vacant homes vacant as an improper use of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me and like my understanding of squatting, you know, when I was a resident of Detroit, a lot of community members were concerned about the safety of squatters um, being in abandoned homes on the, in the neighborhood. I'm not saying that that, that concern is not uh, valid because it is. I'm also saying that a lot of the ways I've experienced my introduction to squatting has been people who have inhabited homes for a long time and can no longer afford rent mm-hmm. and simply stay put. Um, so I think a lot of that squatting is is not as understood or publicized. And also, you know, there are other squatters who just have families and, you know, see homes that are vacant and have been vacant and have invested in these homes and communities. Basically, in 2014, Michigan cracked down on squatter laws, and they passed three House bills, but two that I think were the most kind of egregious. So House Bill 5069 allowed landlords to use force to recover premises from a person who came into possession by trespass, so a squatter, uh, where previously you actually had to have an eviction action filed um, to remove a squatter from the premise. And then Hospital 5070, which makes squatting in a single family household or duplex a misdemeanor for the first offense with a 5,000 maximum fine and a 180 day maximum sentence. That's a down payment for a house. Isn't that crazy? That's a whole lease. So, like punishing poor people for being poor. Yeah. And the second offense is a Class B felony. The $10,000 fine and a two-year minimum sentence. Wow. So this is a very unfortunate law considering that, you know, squatting in Detroit before 2014 was not a crime. (laughs) And it was understood as, you know, I don't know if it had any moralistic 
intention behind it, but it just wasn't criminalized in the way that it is today, which, you know, I think coincides with Detroit's quote unquote rise and the gentrification wave we're seeing. And I'm sure that was like the city's response to some of it. But to know that for the most part, you know, squatters are inhabiting vacant homes out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And I think in a liberatory city, uh, this process would be one where squatters could go through and then have the ability to own the homes that they've invested in, similar to what happened in New York in 2002. However, it seems like the case in Detroit, especially, is that housing justice has a long way to go. So I'm interested in following this case and following other examples of ways activists with, you know, organized collective struggle have gained a, a sort of a form of dominant legitimacy, you know, although legitimate before they were recognized as legitimate, but now can can be recognized by the state as legitimate. And yeah. I think a lot of the work, for me, it feels like I'm in this part of my activism where a lot of the work will have to happen outside of these structures for it to be liberatory. And so I like to see this like interaction between the two. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I'm excited to hear more about it. I'm so excited <laughs> for this segment. Yeah, me too. It was really fun. Okay, so at this part of the podcast, Sarai and I will talk about future visions and milestones. Um, we want to talk a little bit about where we've been so far and where we want to go with this platform. Want to kick us off, Soraya? Yeah, I wanted to kick us off with some of our milestones so far. We released our first episode, I'm pretty sure, in January, which was now, what month is it? Like five months ago, almost six. Look at us go. I count what would have been, the, the podcast that would eventually be known as WOCO. Um, I count our birthday as January 20th, 2020. And so since then, we have released, this is our sixth, now our seventh episode. Our first review was our last episode. We have, we have now 55 followers on our Instagram, as well as we are streaming on eight platforms currently. We are at... 146 plays. We're on eight different streaming platforms. Um, the most popular ones are Anchor Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We have most of our listenership in the United States. Some of it is coming from France. I think we know who that is. <laughs> um, also, some of it is coming from Canada and Ireland. And I'm just curious if, like, they had the app, if, like, somebody from France, like, had the app open as they were going to Ireland. Somebody from the U.S. was had the app open as they were going to Canada. I don't know, but that's four distinct places that wherein people listen to our podcast. Much of our audience is in the 18 to 22 age range with folks, yeah, with folks kind of varying outside of that. We also now have our first podcast review. This actually was posted a while ago, but um, we just haven't, we hadn't shared it until now so i want to share it i don't know who this person is but it's we got five stars says a joy to listen this is from february 28th my favorite podcasts are the ones where it sounds like a group of friends hanging out and enjoying each other's company this podcast is exactly that with the added bonus of accessible intersectional political theory and discussion of real life implications of it the co-hosts affirm each other's ideas and support each other's endeavors throughout in such a beautiful way it truly is a joy to listen to this podcast and i learned some things too winking emoji face amazing co-hosts amazing podcasts i can't wait to see how it grows from here 
So I can't really, this name is like a list of characters, funded hire, semicolon, five, five, eight, uh, dollar sign, four, two, five, G, H, D, D. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, thank you. Thank you for your affirmations. It really was a, nice to read that. I know I have been, I know promoting the, actually promoting the podcast is as important as recording and editing it, but it is something that I've been like working through. So I just really appreciate folks listening and sharing their thoughts. So please continue to do that. We're excited to be growing this into a community space. And yeah, I'm ready to talk about our vision for like the next six episodes. I think that's, that'll be another milestone moment for me at least. Yeah, I feel like we've come so far so soon as far as just I think we've had moments, usually initiated by me, of inconsistency. <laughs> Nonetheless, have come together and recorded things. And of course, I appreciate our listeners and our community. But also, this has been such a personally fulfilling project. And I love bouncing ideas in this space and having Soraya's input. That's really valuable to me. So... Thank y'all for letting us create this space and talk to y'all and be in y'all ear all the time. As far as the future visions for this podcast goes, I am very excited and um, can't wait until we get more WOCOs on our, on our podcast and kind of pick their brains. I think that will be a great step in building community and a network of, of WOCOs. So I'm very excited for that phase of our podcast. Yeah, we were talking about it as we were preparing for this section about like, who are the different amazing folks that we just know, which is only a small segment of the folks that we admire, that we can be sharing this space with, introducing listening listeners to. I've been so grateful to be having these conversations with you, especially throughout this moment of like so much oddness. It's really hard sometimes it feels to get my feet up under me and like feel grounded. And so being able to share things that I'm seeing that I'm experiencing for the sake of like eventually being able to go back and listen and like think about the growth that we experienced um, is something that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Plus one to affirmations for the visions. Um, another vision I have for our space is consistently good audio quality. <laughs> Because it has been an evolution since the very beginning and we're still, we're learning a lot every episode about how to make sure that this is a quality podcast to listen to. And so I'm excited. That's one of the reasons why I've been kind of holding off on like inviting some of our loved ones onto the show just because I want to make sure that it's clear and archivable and that we can like have an expectation of like what it's going to sound like. So I'm excited for that as it happens. Yeah, dope. Same. Um, I'm also looking forward to this space being as much of a benefit to our community as it is to us. Um, and so to me, that looks like having more folks on the show, also getting to a space where like talking about an, your organization's work or business or cooperative on the show will bring as much like like bring around the abundance of this platform to folks who are doing work that is really closely tied to their communities and their passions and just kind of adding to that opportunity of like carving out a space on the internet to for 
folks work can be honored and also like communities not just ours but also connected to ours can continue to grow yeah to that point i think when we are able to be in physical space or physical proximity again i would love to attend you know woco's events and just be a fly on the wall or like offer up you know resources and also receive you know insight from from people that we admire that are in and out of the podcast game yeah I'm I'm excited to get to the point where like we can do that where this like is in addition to being a digital space um is something that can take a physical space uh Crystal and I are both facilitators we're researchers students and the thing with a lot of of like especially like in the academy like academic research around blackness or queerness it does it has a tendency to get stuck there and not always be translated to more accessible and also like tangible um, next steps. And so I'm excited for those things to be able to manifest in the form of events and workshops and other opportunities where we can continue to like welcome folks into these conversations that aren't just us. I think this is really, that's a particularly important piece for me because oppression is about isolating us and limiting our imaginations and making it feel like we're alone we're the only folks experiencing these things in this way when none of that is true when it comes to systemic oppressions um but being able to talk with people that you relate to is what breaks down some of those those structures of power and so i'm excited for like woco to be able to be something that can do that carry that work and um yeah build friendships and um share the beautiful work of women of color and like black women led organizations yeah well that's pretty much that's it to start um Um, if folks are listening and interested in responding please tell us like what you would want to see from this space um what you're excited to like talk with us about or hear us talk about um we're excited to keep bringing content to you yeah i second that we want to call it wraps yeah i think we're done (laughs) i think we're i am out (laughs) 